Well, we've been talking about sprinting to the finish line, right? Making sure that we don't start losing weight in January. We lose it now. Can you tell I've lost weight? Can you, yeah. can you tell us? Come on, everybody. That's with my wife away. That's why. <laughs> it's called forced fasting. Uh, no, it's, it's, anyway, I'm trying to get ready for the new year. I've been swimming three days this week, and uh, that's my new norm now. It used to be five days and then nothing for a couple of months, and then so three days a week, every week. Getting ready, sprinting to the finish line. Not praying for the new year, in the new year, but praying for the new year now. Not planning for 2023 in 2023, planning for it now. And also one of the big milestones coming up is Christmas. Wouldn't it be awesome if we got to Christmas and Christmas was the most joyous, the most peace-filled, the most loving. Imagine if you didn't want Uncle Barry to leave. Imagine if you didn't want Auntie Mary to go. Imagine if it was just a place of peace. Imagine if Jesus, the heralding of Jesus' birth by the angels to the shepherds, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Imagine if there could be a ceasefire in our homes. Imagine if there could be greater unity than ever before. And we've been talking about how to live in agreement because Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Of course, that word agreed is a formal word like you'd sign for a house contract. You must be in agreement for that transaction to happen and for you to own your home or to buy a car. Agreement is everything in life. From going to the local shop to buy the milk, you must agree with the price in order to get possession of it. Every transaction, every part of life is based on agreement. Forward motion happens when we agree. Things change when we agree. And agreement is the highest thing that God looks for because He said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Why are we called the children of God? For being peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. It's because we represent Him. We look like God when we're peacemakers. We look like we're His children if we're making peace. That's why Jesus in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount uses that phrase. It's so, so powerful. But I've got to tell you, this week has been very hard. Very hard for me preaching this message. Is how many of the teacher learns the tests more than the student, learns the material. So I've been tested this week on my belief in what I've been preaching. In fact, during the week, many times I thought, why have I preached this message? I should have preached something else, right? But this is the right message, bringing and coming into agreement, not just transactional agreement, but foundational agreement. Remember, transactional agreement is when we try to get everyone to agree with us. We're trying to get God to agree with us. We've got to get our spouse to agree with us, get our kids to agree with us, get our parents to agree with us. But agreement is about how do I come into agreement foundationally because if I don't come into agreement, our destinations will end up differently. And that's what Amos 3.3 says. How can two arrive at the same destination unless they be in agreement when they walk together? So I don't know about you, but I want to come to the same destination as my wife. I know it might sound pretty obvious, but what happens in most things, I've been around a long, long time, counsel thousands and thousands of people. I see it. An inch of separation here becomes miles of separation over here. 
So we must always go back to our foundational agreements. And, 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 and I've been challenging us to get agreement in place before Christmas. Wouldn't it be amazing if this week, so back to me because I, I just moved off that too quickly. I've had so many challenges this week to be in disagreement. The, joy, the, the, the compelling push to break agreements, the compelling push to get frustrated and angry and upset about a principle that I'm right on. I was right all week. At least I think so. I was right, and guess what? All the people pushing me to get mad or frustrated and actually sever through a wrong and a lack of sophistication in my approach to a transactional disagreement actually fracture foundational agreement. Because Jane and I, this is not about Jane and I, but she's away. Jane and I are in foundational agreement. We disagree on lots, but we have foundational agreement. We walk together. We're on the same purpose, the same path, the same destination. And because of that agreement, our lives flourish. Our lives are not perfect, but our lives move forward quickly. We're able to raise great children because we're in agreement. We've been able to see now the fruit of that in our grandchildren. We see it. I, I'm an expert in parenting now. There's only one 19-year-old left to go who's doing PA today and doing a great job, doing an amazing job today, Ben. Incredible. And I want to say, yeah, come on. I thought the sound was great today. Come on. First time by himself. Come on. We need to find him a wife. So here's the point. <laughs> Not yet. In a little while. Uh, and you have to come through me. And that's easier than going through Pastor Jane, just so you know. So the point is this. So all week, I had to remind myself to react to transaction, transactional agreement the right way. Ignore frustrations that were leading to conflict. There were lots of opportunities for conflict this week. And I've got to say, I got to the edge. <laughs> and a couple of times I failed. Then, whoa, 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 pull back, pull back. Okay, just go a different way. Agreement. God says, I bless agreement. There is nothing else that makes you look like me than agreement. Jesus in the Last Supper, we're going to have communion later, says this, this, last one, this new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, here's my question, husband and wife. Have you offered to die for your spouse? Have you died to yourself for your spouse? Jesus said, love each other like I've loved you. Blessing comes. He says, if you will agree, I'll listen. He said, if you'll agree, blessing will come. Agreement is the most underrated source of success in life. Agreement in families produces strong families. Agreement in churches produces strong churches. Agreement in, in marriages produces strong marriages. We're not talking about agreeing on everything because that's transactional agreement. We're talking about the foundation of we are together. We're gonna solve this. Your problem is my problem. It's our problem. In our friendships, in our relationships, it's so important. And I've gone for agreement this week. I've gotta tell you, I'm proud of myself. I've gone for agreement despite the temptation to engage in anger and frustration that would only lead to disagreement. I think at least 19 to the 20 times. I've circled back though to that disagreement that got a little bit out of hand and I've mended it by apologizing. I might have been right the way I, what I said, but I was wrong the way I said it. And so I had to come back and ask for forgiveness. You know, the hardest thing for most human beings is to ask for forgiveness because we're all so proud. 
Call a spade a spade, as they say. I want to talk to you just really quickly before I get into the message about Mary and Joseph. Right? I got oh, this, this message that's burning my heart about Mary and Joseph. We'll get to that in a, in a second. But just to finish off what we've been talking about, I want to talk about the right way to apologize and the wrong way to apologize. Every apology that contains the word if and but are wrong. Let me give you some examples of a wrong list of apologizing that we do. I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. I'm sorry that you are hurt. I'm sorry, but you started it. I'm sorry if you are hurt by what I said or did. I'm sorry if you feel hurt. I'm sorry if I offended you. The if word is a swear word in apologizing. Right? Because it puts all the blame on the other person. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. If you're hurt, I'm sorry, you idiot. That's the inference, right? Just giving my Australianisms to help with the message, right? A good apology, you ready? Is ones that don't contain ifs and buts, or buts. I can see that what I've done has offended you. I can see that it's offended you and hurt you, and I want to ask your forgiveness for my insensitivity. You've got to name what you did. Not this big, broad generality. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Sorry for what? Because when you say, I know what, that tells me that you really thought about this. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I hurt you. I can tell what I did really upset you or offended you. And as I've reflected on it, I realize I did wrong to you and I'm genuinely sorry. Apologize for the thing you did. I wanted to talk to you and ask for your forgiveness for. Okay, and you just begin to lay it out. Okay, and I found that when you do this, most in Americans are a forgiving group of people. Haven't you seen people that are wiped out, you know, written off, trodden down, they make a comeback and everyone's like, yay! We are the country of the second chance. And when we apologize, we allow that person to rise up in trust again. And let me tell you, the greatest destroyer of relationships is the inability to get over stuff through power of repentance and agreement. If you get that right in every relationship, whether it's a friendship or whether it's a child or whether it's a parent, it makes a massive, massive difference. Be an expert at repairing relationships. And as I said to you last week, I'll say it again, I write down, I was talking to someone yesterday for three hours about a family blow up and I was telling them how to deal with it. We went backwards and forwards and I said, write it down. Write down. You gotta listen, we, we spend more time on tests at college that mean nothing compared to the test of whether you can write an apology. Think about it. It's a science, you can't wing it. You gotta go in thoughtfully. After a while, you'll get it and you'll get okay, humble that's not humble. That's blamatitis, that's sharing the blame. Re- forgiveness and repentance means me take the blame for what I did. I'm not going to take the blame for what you did, but I'm going to take the blame for what I did, right? And God only holds me accountable for me, right? And so when you do that, you release them. You put coals of fire on the head, right? It makes them come to a place where they meet with God. It allows the guilt and blame scale that we talked about last week so powerfully to work. And so right at the beginning of the week, the scripture for me was this, 
and it stuck with me. And this is what helped me during the week. This is why the Word of God is so powerful. In Philippians 4, it says this, Let your gentleness be evident to all. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. We know that part. Rejoice. Let your, let your gentleness be evident to all. For it to be evident to all, I have to be really gentle. I can feel like I'm gentle, but the Bible says that your gentleness be evident. It should be easy to see you're gentle. So in all the, all the conflicts, they were big ones too. When I say big conflicts, they weren't personal conflicts. They were conflicts about things that would cause, you know, challenge and create problems. And in all of them, I'm like, gentleness be evident to all. Actually, gentle, gentle, gentle. This is, you know what Paul is writing here? We think, wow, that's amazing. It's a strange thing for him to write right in the middle of rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Well, let's read the context. The verse before it says this. I plead with Judea and I plead with Cynthia, I guess, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women say, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord and let your gentleness be evident at all. So the context is conflict. Paul is writing to the Philippians about joy, but also in the midst of conflict. Two of his greatest supporters were having a conflict. That's just life. But... How we deal with it matters. Paul says, rejoice for a little while first, be gentle, then go in and deal with it. And that, that verse has rung in my heart all week. I want it to ring in your heart all this week leading up to Christmas. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Wouldn't it be amazing if everybody said this week, wow, you're so gentle. Wow, you're so kind. Wow, it is Christmas. Even in our house, it's Christmas. That would change the world one family at a time. If we just did it, our world would be changed. Our world will be different. And of course, we don't have time, some of us, to go deep into the foundational agreement. At least, if you listen to the thing, if you can't apologize or if there's nothing to apologize for, at least grease the wheel. Put some oil in the engine. What does that mean? That means this week, go out of your way to say something kind to somebody. Make a list. I'm going to say a kind thing to my spouse, to my husband, to my children, to my parents, to my friends. I'm going to go out of my way and I'm going to write a text message. I'm going to make a call. I'm going to get on. I thought to myself, you know, my dad's in a nursing home. I'm going to call him. It's hard to get him different hours of the day. He's not always available. I'm going to call him every day this week. I'm going to up my game on encouragement, kindness, gentleness. Who thinks this is an appropriate word for all of our lives, right? Only three of you, that's great. <laughs> so the title of my message today is this, Go the Extra Mile the Last Week of Christmas. And I want to talk to you about some people who didn't just go the extra mile, but went a hundred extra miles the last week of Christmas. I want you to imagine, it's the week before Christmas. There wasn't a stirring in the house. No, we're not going to that. <laughs> it's a week before Christmas and Mary and Joseph who this whole story is about, we're about to embark on a 100-mile walk. I've just been through the, uh, well, I didn't go through it, but you know, I've been there for the birth of my daughter-in-law's fourth child. If you had asked Lauren to walk 100 miles the week before she gave birth, you'd be reported to somebody. 
What are you doing? 100 miles, I can't even walk to the kitchen. It hurts, everything hurts. The bed hurts, everything hurts. This baby hurts. Get this baby out of me. I don't know when the disagreement started. I'm just imagining this. This is not in the Bible. I'm just imagining it. But it kind of glosses over the fact that Mary and Joseph walked from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There's no proof that they rode on a donkey. They may have. Would be nice, wouldn't it? We kind of mirror the whole triumphal entry of Jesus. Here's Jesus on a donkey coming to Jerusalem on his way to Bethlehem. Would be like the end of the Gospels. But we don't know that. So here what we do know is this. I'm going to put a picture up of their journey. We've got a picture of their journey somewhere. There we go. So there they are. They're in Nazareth. There are different ways. There's two different ways they could have gone. Nazareth, on terms of sea level, is about 1,500 feet, maybe 1,200 feet to 1,500 feet lower than Bethlehem. It looks like they're going down to Bethlehem, but they're going up to Bethlehem, and they're going up and down and up. If you've been in that area, you'll know that it's desert, and it's up and down, and it's hills, and you have to walk through the hills. Bethlehem's in the foothills. You can even see by the, by the topography there that it's in the foothills. So they're having to go from Nazareth. There was no Uber. For pregnant ladies, there was no Tahoe. There was nothing to bundle them all into. They had to walk the whole distance. And can you imagine? I can imagine Mary going, I'm not going anywhere. This hurts already. What do you mean we're going somewhere? I wanted to be with my family at this time of the year. And it's cold. We have to go. Why do we have to go? Remember, these guys were engaged to be married. She was, had Jesus. She was about to give birth to Jesus. And they're about to go down this track, and they're having this, you know, I can imagine having this argument. Why are we doing this? Well, don't blame me, Mary. It's Caesar. Caesar has called a census. He wants us all to pay more tax. Wow, that's going to get me motivated to go. And what Caesar had done, it says here, in the Bible and Luke says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And I want you to imagine as they're packing their, their stuff, now you can't take that, Mary. Can't take that many clothes, you can't take the sink, you can't take the microwave. We've got to go walking. Is there not another way, Joseph? Why are they doing this? They're complaining about the government, they're complaining about the travel. It's cold. And they start off on that journey. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? Somewhere along the line, they agreed. We've got to go to your parents' town and we've got to get registered for tax, according to Caesar Augustus. Think about our own lives. I don't know about you guys, but our families had debates over which house we have Christmas in. Anyone ever had debates about that? Right? Forget about the house you've got to go to. Think about how far you've got to walk. That's the big question. Here they are walking to Nazareth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the place where Joseph, I can imagine Mary, Mary, I'm not even married to you. This is not even my family line. I want to get here. This is where I grew up. My, my parents aren't going to be happy with me going at eight and a half months pregnant, walking. Well, we've got to do it. 
And you think to yourself, and I don't know about you, but I, I, I think to myself more deeply about these stories than just what we read. And I think this would have caused some challenges for them, not only challenges for them, but challenges about their relationship with God. God, what were you thinking? Giving me a baby that I didn't ask for. I said yes. And now you're going to make me walk 100 miles. What the heck is going on, God? Could you not arrange your calendar a little bit better? Could it not have been that I'm in Nazareth and that's where the baby's born? Why do we have to go to Bethlehem? It's uphill. There are robbers. It's cold. It's inconvenient. Why did you get it wrong? Ever said that to God about His timing? God, why are you asking me to do this? Well, as I began to think about it, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said this, and I want to share this with you just for a quick moment. How many know there's a real attack against not only the Bible, the Word of God, but against stories like the virgin birth? Okay? So God wasn't just thinking about the comfort of Mary. He was trying to make the story of the virgin birth an unassailable construct. And I want to show you. Because it had been prophesied in Micah by Micah 600 years earlier that the baby would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Let's read that verse. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. What's really interesting is that God was making sure this story was watertight. The story wasn't just convenient for Mary and Joseph. The story was watertight for you and I and our children and our children's children. He was trying to create a scenario in which the probabilities of prophecy being fulfilled would be one to an exponential power. In fact, they did a study on this with 600 students at a particular college and I'm going to read it to you. So they took, where is it? A professor at Westmount College had calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes representing some 600 university students. The students carefully weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, and examined the various circumstances. Now, there are 300 prophecies about Jesus' life, birth, life and death and resurrection in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament, hundreds of years written before the New Testament. 300 prophecies about His birth, where He was gonna be born, who He's gonna be, how He's gonna die, and how He's gonna rise again. And for those 300 to be fulfilled, in fact, let's go back a bit. This class did a study just on eight of those prophecies being fulfilled, like the one about Bethlehem. You see, sometimes our discomfort is, is, is misunderstood by us as in the present it's not comfortable, but God is actually doing something to make your story unassailable. He's doing something to make the miracle that He's about to do, what you're about to give forth, so ridiculously supernatural that nobody can ever reasonably deny what God is at work. But we want everything like our noodles now. Our two-minute noodles, we want them now. I want to microwave Jesus. I want to microwave miracle. I want it now. 
And God says, well, what about if I'm thinking about your grandkids? What about if I'm thinking about your children? What about if I'm thinking five generations down? Would you trust me enough to believe that the God who came to you in the first place is the God that's gonna finish off this miracle properly so it cannot be controversial any longer. It can't be, it's incontrovertible in terms of assailment by others who disagree or who wanna dismantle what I've done. Let me do what I wanna do to help those who don't know who I am. Could you, on your way to Christmas, go the extra mile because of the miracle that God wants to do on Christmas Day? Could God do a miracle in your family this week and actually bring harmony? Could you pre-set it up by calling somebody, loving on them, sending them a text saying, looking forward to seeing you, you know, I miss seeing you, all those things that make a difference. Could you just do that when Mary had to walk 100 miles? All I'm asking you to type is 100 characters. Is it possible for you to do 100 characters for a miracle, to birth something good? Or is that next Christmas when they're probably not here anymore? All those things matter. So they did a test just of eight prophecies. And here's what the conservative estimates, remember they're not trying to amplify this, they're trying to conserve, this is only eight prophecies, not 300. 800, eight prophecies. The chances of it is the number 10 with 17 zeros after it. Chance of eight prophecies coming together about Jesus' birth is the probability of one in 10 to the 17th power. Just incredible. Why? Because God is trying to make us believe that the Word of God is not some kind of, I can pass this, this part in red is God, and this part in black is not, and somehow I start tearing up the Word of God. I either believe the Bible is the Word of God or I don't. You either got to choose to be in or choose to be out, because when you sit on a fence, you fall off anyway. I've tried walking on a fence and hurt myself very badly. Here's the thing. You've got to be either be all in and believe this is the inspired Word of God. If God could cause 300 prophecies to culminate in the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus, do you think He can't preserve His own Word? And somehow we think it's man that have got involved in all this. No, the Bible tells me the Bible is the inspired Word of God. There'll be some questions I'll ask in heaven, but I believe it's God's Word. Sure, I've got to interpret it with good hermeneutics, all those kinds of things, but it is the Word of God. If we don't agree there, you need to find a church that doesn't agree with the Bible. Why? Because we do. And you'll get nothing. This is not a place of platitudes and self-help-me programs. This is a place of the Word of God and the culmination of Jesus being the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Without that, we have nothing. We have a religious sham. So I just want to say to you, agree with God that His Word is true or disagree with it and get out. Go to the movies. I'm not saying get out. I'm not asking you to get out. That's not, that's not what I mean. What I'm saying is don't bother. Believe the Word of God is the Word of God and hold fast to it. It's a good word. Isaiah 46 says this, 
shout that people are like the grass, their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. I've noticed that about myself. I was very beautiful when I was younger, handsome. And just like the flowers of the field that faded, mine has faded too. I believe every person gets one good-looking decade. <laughs> I believe that's just how God puts out justice and fairness. Everybody gets a good-looking 10 years. I think I had mine between zero and 10. It's been downhill ever since then. All right, some of you are just coming into it. Boy, it's been terrible up to now, but it's about to get really much mellow. No, I'm only joking. Oh, I've got jet lag. That's all right. I'm only joking. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord, and so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands for three generations. It stands for the 1950s. It stands for the 1970s, 80s stands forever. And we've got to believe that. We've got to agree with that if we're ever going to get out of God's Word what God wants us to get out of it. If God says that you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven, and if you don't, you don't, you need to believe that. We don't have time to go into those side alleys. Here we go. Mary and Joseph had no idea the part they were playing in the grand scheme of things as they went there mile after mile. Think about it. As they're going mile after mile, Mary's battling more discomfort, more pain. Joseph's going through more doubts. Like, how did I get involved with this woman who's having a baby already? It's been embarrassing in the village. We're not even married, and I've got to take her 100 miles to this place. God, what are you doing? Why couldn't you have made it a lot easier? And I'm sure they had no idea that you and I, 2,000 years later, would be sitting here talking about their story and about their journey. But that is the power of our lives. Did you know, because we're so insecure and feel insignificant about ourselves, we don't think our lives matter. But can I just say that your life really, really matters, at least to one or two or three people, maybe hundreds and maybe dozens of people, your life really matters. Therefore, I'm gonna live my life as if my life matters to them. It certainly matters to God. And if I can live it, you see, one of the reasons I make decisions I do, and I'm speeding up in my speaker, I can feel that, um, so some of you will struggle to keep up. But part of the reasons I behave the way I do with my children is not because I think they're deserving. They need a smack across the head, up the side of the head, wherever. But I do it because I'm thinking it matters to them what I do. I live a certain way because it matters how I live to the people that watch my life. Your life matters. Mary and Joseph have got to trust that as they are trudging hour after hour, seven to 10 days of journeying by foot up and down hills, down towards dangerous places, cold places, it's raining that time of year, it just pours with rain all the time. They're having to make their way. And you would have thought God would have made it easy that at least when they got to Bethlehem, well done. We've got a great room for you, sir. We've upgraded you to the presidential suite. Know what happens? Sorry, you don't even have any room left in, where were they going? Bethlehem, that's right. I was gonna say Jerusalem. Bethlehem. They've gone through Jerusalem to get to Bethlehem. And so, come on, God, we've just done 100 miles. Ever felt like you've done your thing for God already? Now come and answer my prayer. And God says, the stable will be good because I've got a bigger plan and that is to show 
that God in heaven doesn't demand a palace when he comes to earth. He's going to be born at the lowest of the low so that everybody would feel they have access to him. Not only that, but he's going to come as a baby, so he's defenseless. So he's got no attitude. He's not a person, a position. He's just a baby. And I'm going to do that so that all the world, no matter who they are, from the youngest child to the oldest person, has access to the grace of God. Mary and Joseph, could you not just go one mile longer? We went to this place and that place, and they said, the stable's a mile down the road. Could you not go one extra mile to see the miracle of the ages be born? Here's my question. This week, you're going to be asked to go maybe five extra miles. Go pick up the ham. Go pick up the turkey. It's inconvenient. Go do this. Go do that. Could you just remember Joseph and Mary and go, it's not so bad driving my Tesla to get the ham? If you have to walk 100 miles this week, please see Pastor Ryan. He'll pray for you. He may even come with you. Because he likes to share the burdens of the people. <laughs> Around 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. There's no place to go, but they've got to walk that extra mile. Aren't you glad Jesus walked that extra mile? Aren't you glad his parents taught him about walking the extra mile? Maybe it was the impression of their sacrifice and getting him to the place of being born that allowed him, when he's been beaten and been made to carry this cross to a hill, he's been told the story about mum and dad, how they took me up a hill and took me up the hill and down the hill to this place that we had to go and register. And here he is, sweating, as it were, drops of blood, now actually bleeding all over the place. But he climbs up that hill and goes to that hill because he remembers the story. We did this for you. And he's thinking to himself, I'm doing it for them. You see, you have no idea, nor do I, what impact your extra mile this week will have on your family. It's an extra hour staying up, an extra 100 characters on your keyboard, extra 100 texts to all the relatives and people that you know that you need to say thank you, you're a blessing, you're wonderful. Each text may cost you 40 seconds. Is it worth it for what's going to be birthed on the other side of that text? The response, the outcome. You see, God's at work in our lives trying to make our testimony a miracle beyond contradiction. The reason why God sometimes delays or gives us inconvenient things to do in the middle of the promise and the outcome is because he wants the miracle to be so stupendous and so incredible and so earthy at the same time and so powerful. It transcends criticism and negativity and it stands as an epitaph to God's glory, power and grace in our lives. 
God's not trying to withhold anything from us. He's trying to get us the Messiah. He's trying to get us the promise. He's trying to get us everything, but He doesn't want it just to be for us. He wants to, to impact people down the line of our family. You know, whenever a miracle happens in our house, you know one of the things we do? Whenever, someone, uh, whenever something happens, miraculous, financial, whatever it might be, we share it with a whole family. Why? I'm building a testimony for them to be able to build their own testimony for the future. And when God delays, it's not God's denial. Whenever God delays something, listen to this. When God delays something, it's only because He's working on something bigger. You think it's about you and God says, no, it's about you and 20 other things. I want to affect your family now, the generations to come. I want to affect the work colleagues. I want to affect you. I want to affect lots of things. I'm not just here to be Santa Claus, the impersonator of the real gift giver. We don't have time to go down that route. And we will have Santa Claus this year. But we remind him that, no, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so this week as you go the extra mile in your Tesla, Remember the extra miles Mary and Joseph went to deliver the miracle that you are the recipient of, that you did nothing to earn. Their 100-mile trek brought redemption to you. Being born in a stable meant he's accessible to everybody. From the 20 million outcasts in India that are just in the lowest caste system of all. But where there's a revival taking place through a friend of mine who's planted 23,000 churches in that group of people, the untouchables. The bottom level of the bottom level. When they read the story about Jesus, they can relate to a manger because that's how they live. Mary and Joseph, I know it's not expedient, I know it's uncomfortable. Could you go one extra mile so my grace can go further, can go more than one mile further? That's how we bring agreement this Christmas when we take on the attitude of Mary and Joseph and Jesus later on, who made himself a little lower than the angels, came from heaven to be a little child, and to grow up with all the vulnerabilities that happen as a child. God, almighty God, vulnerable. Whew. Maybe this week, God's asking you to be vulnerable. If God made himself vulnerable, can we make ourselves vulnerable? We only have to move a little degree. God had to move everything. Make that phone call. Have that conversation. Write that text. Don't scribble through the hundred cards you've got to do. Oh, you're a great person. God bless. Have a great year. Write something meaningful. Make the card more valuable than the present. Isaiah 9 verse 6, 100 years before Jesus was born, says this, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. The shepherds were watching their flocks when suddenly an angel appeared to them and said this, 
Just as then an angel came to the shepherds and stood over them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you who will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there appeared with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favour rests. Here's a little secret for you. God, I, I know you love me. Your favour rests on me. I'm gonna act like your favour rests on me. Goes on. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After they had seen the child, they spread the message they had received about him and all who heard it were amazed. And that's what we're gonna do this week. Bring people to our Christmas Eve service. We're gonna give an opportunity for people to find Jesus this Christmas Eve. Let's bring everybody we can think. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. She still didn't understand. I'm just carrying this baby. Man, my hips hurt, my back hurts, everything hurts. Couldn't even get a room. All we got was a feeding trough. This week, there are gonna be many obstacles. The journey will be challenging but I want you to be like Mary and Joseph. Realize the bigger picture. Realize that you and I are ambassadors of the risen Christ. It's our job to arrive at Christmas Day intact, smiling, and happy. You have to fake it till you make it. Do it beforehand. So I wrote down some things. Call people coming to Christmas before they arrive and empower them and encourage them. Tell me, hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Just send out a text. Send out a couple of texts this week. Put, here's another practical thing. So I'm into practical stuff. Put Christmas carols on in your car. Because Pastor Jane's away in Franklin, Tennessee right now, Ben and I are at home and Jeremy, we're at home. So I'm upstairs by myself. I'm like, this is gonna be the most miserable Christmas ever. No, no, no offense to Ben. <laughs> So just on Friday, I just cranked up Whitney Houston's carols. Because I love Whitney Houston. Put on her carols, all so loud through the house. Every day, every day the carols are gonna play right through. Because I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just gonna get to Christmas and then what? You've got to build up. Most things require to build up. Let's build up well in the spirit of Jesus. Focus on Jesus in your house. Not presents. Presents are gonna come anyway because with Jesus is always presence. But focus on Jesus. The reason for the season is Jesus. Don't get hoodwinked by Amazon and all the big box stores. Remember, we only have those presents because of the greatest gift ever given. Focus on agreement, not the food. If he burns the turkey, who cares? Just don't burn any bridges. Apologize ahead of time. Get ahead of it now. Remember why you're stressed 
and determined to be at least half as good. You'll never be as good. Half as good as Mary and Joseph. You're not going to go to sleep in a manger this week. You're not going to have to walk 100 miles. Imagine if we arrive at Christmas exactly in the right place at the right time with the right message. It's going to be awesome.